0: You're listening to a message from Victory Church of the Bay Area. For more information, please visit us on our website at victoryus.org. How many of you like to watch movies or TV shows? What kind of TV shows or movies do you, do you like watching? Action movies. What else? Love story right there. Uh, what else? Drama. How many of you like drama? Yeah. <laughs> Most people enjoy drama when it's on television, but they don't like drama in real life. Okay? So <laughs> I also like drama, but the courtroom drama kind. Okay? And that's every time I watch um, you know, movies or TV shows that are courtroom dramas, it, it's very engaging to me. It's very intellectually stimulating, and it's intriguing, interesting, and it just fascinates me. And looking at the people going through those courtroom scenes, I would imagine it's, it would be a stressful thing. How many of you have been in a court proceeding? You know, whether you're, you sued someone <laughs> or you got sued or something, don't raise your hand. Okay, so, but how many of you would say that is this, it is a stressful thing to be there? Most especially if you are the one being accused of something, right? And now say, I like courtroom dramas, but I wouldn't want to be in one. Okay, so <laughs> I wouldn't want to be in, in one. And the reason I say that is because uh, we're going to look at, for the next four weeks starting today, we're going to look at a drama. It's like in a courtroom, a trial that is infamous in history because of the manner it was conducted. And, and as we approach Easter on um, the last Sunday of March, um, this sermon series that we're starting today will lead to Easter. Okay, so basically what we're going to look at is Jesus on trial. Okay, Jesus on trial. And in the four weeks that we're going to look at, these are our topics. So we're going to look at him being accused by the religious leaders of the day. And basically his first trial was with the religious leaders of Israel, okay, the Sanhedrin. And that's what we're going to talk about this morning and how he was accused and charged as a criminal, In their minds. And then, after he was uh, accused and charged with a crime, he was sent to Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor. Okay, Because during this time, Israel was under the Roman occupation. So, Jesus was in uh, Pilate's court. And Pilate issued some questions about him, basically cross-examined him. Based on what he had heard from the Sanhedrin and from the Pharisees and from the religious leaders. And now he's making his own inquiry. And he had an encounter with Jesus there while face to face with him. And then after that, he sent Jesus to Herod. And Herod, being appointed by the Roman Empire, he was walking on both sides of the Roman government and the Jewish government. He was appointed king of Israel, but it's entitled only. It was a position that he enjoyed, and he was intrigued by Jesus, and so he asked Jesus a lot of things, and he actually wanted Jesus to perform miracles for him. You know, he he didn't really care about who Jesus was, he just wanted him, he just wanted to be entertained, and he wanted Jesus to do all those miracles that he had heard Jesus perform, but Jesus never obliged, and so Herod treated him with contempt. That's the third week. And then he was sentenced to, to death. He was crucified and he died. But that didn't end the case. The case was not solved. It did not end with the religious leaders, with Pilate or with Herod. It ended with Jesus proving who he was by his resurrection. And we're going to be looking at that on Easter Sunday or Resurrection Sunday. And that's when the case was closed. Okay. So that's the the overview of this sermon series. So today, let's look at our first topic, which is Jesus being accused. All right, and and I'd like to invite everybody to please stand to your feet as we uh, honor God's Word. Uh, We are going to read from the book of Mark, chapter 14. If you have your apps with you, just uh, open your app and click on the Bible there. If you brought your Bible with you, good as the Australians would say, good on you, mate. So, But we're not in Australia. So, <laughs> But it's good for you that you, you brought your Bibles with you, whether it's electronic or the printed one. But there, nothing beats the printed one. Nothing beats having this Bible and reading it b- being before you, okay? So, all right, are you there? Mark chapter 14. Mark is one of the, uh, the four Gospels, okay? So it's in the New, Sa- New Testament, Matthew, and then Mark, okay? Chapter 14. We're going to read from verses 40, 53, sorry two sixty five. And they led Jesus to the high priest, and all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together. And Peter had followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest, and he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Yet even about this their testimony did not agree. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But he remained silent and made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garments and said, What further witnesses do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. And some began to spit on him and to cover his face and to strike him, saying to him, prophesy. And the guards received him with blows. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Your word brings insight to us. Your word opens our eyes to see what matters, to see your truth. And Lord, we thank you that through your word, your spirit teaches us all things. Lord, we pray that as we would look at the religious leaders and how they treated you, Lord, may we see that example and may we desire that we would never be like them. And if we are to certain degrees, then help us to see the folly of our ways and help us to repent. That we may, may not treat you with contempt, but that we would respond to you for who you really are. Lord, we just lift up this sermon to you. We pray that you would... Open up our hearts and teach us your word so that we may live according to it. in Jesus' name. we pray. Amen. You may all take your seats. In our new sermon series, we're going to be looking at the trials of Jesus in these different groups, and, and uh, the goal of this series is for us to, to understand, to understand the identity of Christ, that He is the Son of God who saves people from their sins. And that we would also understand the significance of his sacrifice on that cross. How does it impact our lives? Okay, those are the two things we want. And coming to this narrative in Jesus' first trial, and this actually is a trial that lives in infamy in history. Because, again, I said it a while ago, because of the unrighteous manner it was conducted. And because of the unjust motive behind this trial, okay? And uh, this was actually part of an elaborate scheme or elaborate plan of the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin is the Jewish ruling council of the time, okay? It's comprised of religious leaders, such as the Pharisees, some scribes, uh, the priests, and the leader of the Sanhedrin is the high priest. So these are the religious leaders who governed the ways of Israel, but they were under the supervision of the Roman governor. Okay, so they did have power, but they really don't have total power. So that's why they went to Pontius Pilate after they tried Jesus. Their plan was to arrest Jesus, to try him, and to sentence him. We can see that there have been plots hatched by the Sanhedrin to arrest him. In uh, Mark chapter 14, verses 1 and 2, we just backtrack a bit. It says there, it was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking, sorry, I can't read it, seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. Can you imagine? These were the religious leaders of the day, most respected, and they're the ones who Teach the people about God's laws, about God's word, about the scriptures, and how to, how to implement and apply the scriptures in their lives. And yet, in their hearts, they were plotting to kill this man because they were threatened by his teaching, his influence, and because of the fact that people are now following Jesus. Their influence was threatened, their way of life may be threatened. And that's why they wanted to put an end to this man okay, by killing him. And then, and then in verse it says there, but not during the feast, lest there be an uproar okay, from the people. So they wanted to kill Jesus, and yet they wanted to maintain righteousness, at least a form of righteousness, an external righteousness, so that they can still conform to The norms and traditions set by them, okay, all throughout the centuries. They still held on to their traditions, their religious traditions, but in their hearts they were plotting murder. Isn't that interesting? Isn't that interesting? (laughs) Uh, And they couldn't see it. They thought they were doing God a favor because in their minds, Jesus was a fraud. That was their expectation he was not the real deal. They were the real deal. They were the guardians of the scriptures. They were the vanguards of God's truth. Surely he could not give another person outside of our group influence and uh, anointing and his spirit to teach our people. It's us. We are the only ones and if you don't go through us, it's kind of like today, some, some cults and some religions say, we are the only true religion. You know, they say that the only through us. Now, they were wanting to kill Jesus and an opportunity came. Okay, a few verses later, Judas Iscariot, actually influenced by the devil, one of the 12 went to the chief priests in order to betray Jesus to them. And when they heard it, they were glad. They were, they were glad. They were, they were excited about it. Yes, it's going to happen. And promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray Jesus. You see, as we look at this passage, and then Jesus was betrayed eventually after the Last Supper. And then he went to the Garden of Gethsemane to pray. He was betrayed by Judas, and Judas brought a mob with him soldiers and people who were loyal to the priests, and they arrested Jesus. For what crime? They just arrested him at night, and immediately they whisked him away to the palace of that high priest where the chief priests, the scribes, and all the elders were there assembled already. You can see it was really planned. You see, the Sanhedrin were there at night in the house, in the palace of The high priest, and they were gonna do a rush trial there. They're gonna railroad the process. No due process for this guy, they said. Now, as we look at this passage, we'll see a pattern that's true for the next two weeks, okay? So, for the first three weeks of our series, we will see a pattern that we're gonna follow, okay? First is that there is an expectation by those prosecuting Jesus. They had an expectation of Jesus. Secondly, when he was there in, in front of them as, as he was being tried, they had questions that they were throwing at him. And most of them were not questions wanting to be enlightened, wanting to know the truth. It's really just questions to, to validate what they think and do away with him. Okay? And then they would get an answer. Some, some answers, you know, Jesus answered them differently. And then we would see the prosecutor's reaction to what Jesus said. Okay? So let's look at the first one, the expectation. What, what was the expectation of the Sanhedrin, the religious leaders? Okay, these were the models of society that they were supposed to follow as far as piety is concerned, as far as um, you know, living a righteous life is concerned. But all throughout Jesus' ministry, Jesus lambasted them for their hypocrisy. Because they teach people to do things, but they were not willing to do it themselves. And they love their positions of authority. They love their position in society. They love the place of honor accorded their position. And here we can see that even though they were the influencers of society, they are supposed to represent God. They were plotting murder in their hearts. So Jesus really knows what people are like. And how they are. You see, the trial was merely an appearance and a formality just to, for them to do what they want to do with him. Verse 55, it says there, Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. This exposes their motive. Why did they they have to bring him to trial? Actually, they were thinking if we just kill him, then his blood will be in our hands. But if we try him as as a court, it was an ad hoc court. Okay, so, and if we try him according to our laws, then we will be able to have a legal charge against him that we can have him executed. So they're using the law, they're using the law of God to further their own agenda the motive here is to put jesus to death so the religious religious expectation jesus was that he was a fraud so even before he was tried they already had a predetermined outcome in their minds he's guilty already and he deserves death but they can't just kill him because he has to either confess or you know people would testify against him in order for it to be to seem righteous, okay, so that they won't be in trouble. And in verses 56 through 59, let's just read through that again. For many bore witness, false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will will destroy this temple that is made with hands, with human hands, and In three days, I will build another not made with hands. And in verse 59 says, Yet even about this, their testimony did not agree. It's laid out there in verses 56 and 59. They were giving false testimony. Imagine, Jesus was arrested, brought quickly to the palace of the high priest, and then the, the Sanhedrin was there, And a child was waiting him, and then it was uh, late at night. And some some biblical scholars would say it's 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 in early hours of the morning. But people were there, even the witnesses against Jesus, the false witnesses. So it's planned. I mean, you can see that it was rigged, right? So here, we see Jesus coming into this place, and people were testifying against him. This is a case of people perverting the words of Christ. How many of you experienced this before when you said something and then some people heard you but misunderstood you and they misquoted you and then everyone believed the misquote rather than what you said? Have you ever experienced that? (laughs) That's what happened here. Now, here is what Jesus actually said. Two occasions, they probably heard it. But they used it against him. They were perverting his words. Okay, first is in Mark 13. And here it was actually Jesus was telling his disciples privately of the coming destruction of the temple. And as he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, that what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Okay, in AD 70, we what was it, 67, after a few uh, decades after Jesus ascended to heaven, the temple was actually destroyed by, by the Romans. Okay, so Jesus predicted it because he, he is, he's God, he knows the end from the beginning and everything in between. He knows all the thoughts that run through your head. Aren't you glad that God didn't make us with like a monitor here that shows whatever things we would think of? It's like a TV monitor here that shows you what you're thinking of at the moment. If He made us that way, then, you know, the caps would be the most, you know, would be the biggest business in the world in history because we're going to use the cap to cover what we're thinking, right? And here's another place where Jesus was misquoted. In John 2, verses 19 and 21, through 21, says, Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? Obviously, they were referring to the temple in Jerusalem. They were referring to to the temple. But Jesus was actually referring to the temple of his body. He was speaking about his death, burial, and resurrection, three days. See, people were taking him out of context. So here, the expectation was that he was a fraud. Let's look at the questions asked him. So see, even the testimonies of those false witnesses did not agree. And by law, in Deuteronomy 17, it says there, no one can be put to death on the testimony of just one witness, it has to be a minimum of two. Two or three testimonies that agree, okay, that corroborate each other, that, that they agree and they validate the testimony. But if they disagree with one another, then it doesn't hold, you know, it doesn't hold water. There's no basis for, the, for capital punishment or death penalty. And so here, they were all in disagreement. They, they were trying to use what the law provided at two or three witnesses. If they say the same thing, you can put this man to death as long as it's valid. But they failed there. They had many witnesses there, false witnesses, and they could not validate the testimony because they, were, they had different details. You know, when you make up something, you have to exert extra effort to remember what you make up, Right? But if you're telling the truth, you don't have to remember anything because it's the truth. It will always be the same story over and over as you tell it. You remember the details. And so the question now here is this. So they wanted Jesus to be, to be accused and to be validly um, charged by the testimony of two or three, but that didn't happen. And so a commotion was happening. So the high priest stood up and said, and in exasperation, took matters into his own hands. And he said, don't you hear what they're saying? Aren't you going to answer them? He was provoking Jesus to give an answer to those who were accusing him in the hope that by his own words, he will be condemned, that he would incriminate himself in front of everyone. The high priest stood up. Here's what Jesus did. He remained silent. He remained silent and made no answer. You see, the truth need not explain itself before lies. Okay? It need not explain itself before lies and before malice. Jesus is secure. He knew who he was. He didn't have to say anything. But as he remained silent, the high priest, in his exasperation and maybe in his desperation, To get this guy, he asked, he basically invoked the name of God in the way that they use. You know, if you notice, it says here, the Son of the Blessed. This is, they use, the Jews, you would use terms to refer to God so that they wouldn't have to say his name because his name is holy, right? And so they refer to God as the Blessed One. The high priest invoked the name of God. And ask the question, are you the Christ? Are you the Messiah? Are you the son of the blessed one? Basically, he was asking, are you the son of God? You see what he was doing there? He was trying to cause Jesus to say it that he is, so that in their minds, that is a blasphemous statement, because how can a mere man claim to be God? Claim to be divine. See what the high priest was doing? And here we see Jesus' answer. Jesus answered the high priest. You see, out of probably, this is just my thought, probably out of respect for the name of God that has been invoked and probably out of respect for the position of the high priest. I don't know. That's just me. He answered the high priest and he said, Are you the Christ are you the son of the blessed one? And here's what he said. I am. And he paused for effect. Now that's just me. <laughs> I am. Now that term I am, that probably was Mark's way or even the Lord's way you know, to refer to the name of God in Exodus when God revealed himself to Moses. When Moses asked, if they ask me, Who sent me, what shall I say to them? Tell them, I am sent you. And I am has been a name of God ever since. That's the name he has revealed. And he said, I am. And you, here's the thing. Look at what Jesus said here. And you will see the Son of Man. Now remember, he was talking to the religious leaders who study the scriptures, the Old Testament. They didn't call it the Old Testament, okay? who studied their scripture, and they knew these passages. See, Jesus used language or verbiage that were found in the book of Daniel and in the book of Psalms. And he said it here. You will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power. In another translation, at the right hand of God and coming with the clouds of heaven. This is basically verbiage from... Daniel chapter 7 and, and Psalm 110, referring to, referring to someone who is in the presence of God. And see here, Jesus not only affirmed that he was the Messiah, he also affirmed that he is indeed the Son of the Blessed One. He is the Son of God. And that the Messiah was not just a man that everybody expected, the Messiah, the promised Messiah was of divine origin. And so, put yourself in the minds, in the shoes, sorry, in the shoes of, or in the sandals of the high priest. When you hear a statement like that by a mere man who's not even a priest or not even in a recognized, ordained position from their culture, that's blasphemous in their minds. So, in their minds, ha there you go. That's what we've been waiting for. And then, notice what happened there. The high priest tore his garment. Okay? Let me show this to you. Exodus 3. Here's what God said to Moses. I am who I am. And here was the reaction. So Jesus revealed himself. Before this this trial, Jesus had been, you know, uh, he didn't really explicitly reveal himself to the people, but he would ask, who do you think is the Son of Man? Okay, And then he would probably give hints and allow the Holy Spirit to work and give revelation to those who are really seeking him. But here he states it plainly and straightforward. I am the Messiah. And here's the reaction. The high priest tore his garments and said, What further witnesses do we need? You have heard the blasphemy, his blasphemy. And you see that tearing of the robe was actually a part of of their tradition as a judicial court, when they do that, that means that, is, that they have heard something blasphemous. That is a, judi- a judicial action. So he tore his robe and said, this is blasphemy. What do you say? And they all condemned Jesus as deserving death. You see, blasphemy, at least according to their minds and according to what the scriptures say, blasphemy is a crime it's punishable by death and they got him and all that pent up hatred pent up emotion and you know because he's already quote unquote blasphemed now they have every reason to pour out their hate on him so they were you know they were mocking him they spat on him they were hitting him and mocking him and saying prophesy who hit you so that was their reaction so in their minds In the minds of the religious leaders, they were defending the glory and the honor of God. That's why they were so zealous to do this. They were defending God's honor. The death sentence was handed down just, but here's an interesting thing. The death sentence has been handed down just as Jesus said it would. In Mark chapter 10, remember our text is in Mark 14. In Mark chapter 10, Here's what Jesus said to his disciples. See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. So basically, Jesus knew about knew all what's going to happen. He knew it. He knew what was going to take place. As a matter of fact, everything that has happened all throughout his life, and everything that was going to happen fulfilled Scripture. And in here, it's predicted by Scripture and it's predicted by Jesus himself. In Matthew 26, at that hour, Jesus said to the cross, when he, was, when he was arrested in Gethsemane, here's what he said. Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day, I sat in the temple teaching and you did not seize me. You did not do that in the daytime. You have to do it in the cover of darkness. But here's what he said. But all this has taken place that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. That's why in Gethsemane, he was, he was praying to God and, and he was, his soul was so weighed down because of what is about to take place that he began to sweat blood. That was so stressful. How many of you began uh, experience sweating blood? You're so stressed out, you sweat blood. He was so stressed out because, as a human being. He was so stressed out because of what's about to happen. And, he, and that's where he prayed, Father, if it's possible, take this cup away from me. Because his soul was in anguish, and yet he said, Yet not my will, but your will be done. And he prayed and he surrendered fully, basically. The perfect will of the Father. So everything that has happened has been planned all along. Now, let me make some observations here and some comments. The religious leaders were, you know, if you would look at it, they should be the examples of faith, of righteousness, of holiness, of doing what's right. And yet they were the antith- antithesis of that. Why is that? Let me show you something here that may connect to some of us or most of us. Because let me say this. We, at different degrees, have a Pharisee in each of us. We have a religious person in each of us. Okay? Ask the person next to you, are you religious? Now you're saying, no, I'm not religious. I'm just spiritual. (laughs) Let me talk to you about devotion to religion. Devotion to religion, the Sanhedrin, the religious leaders, they were devoted to their religion. They were devoted to their system of faith, their belief system. They were devoted to their traditions, to their centuries-old faith. They were so devoted that they began to put their faith and their religion above truth and above God. And many times we are like that. How many of you heard this? I was born in this religion. I will die in this religion. Here's what devotion to religion will do to you. Devotion to religion is not necessarily devotion to truth. Were the Sanhedrin moving in truth? Were they? Were they moving in love? They were moving in zeal and in passion, yes. But not in love. And see, God is love. Devotion to religion can blind you to the truth. Not only is is it not the same as devotion to truth, devotion to religion can blind you to the truth. Jesus Christ, who is the way, the truth, and the life, was right in front of them, and they missed it. They missed the truth. Why? Because they were so given to their religion. Religion, let me tell you, is man's way to get to God. And they are trying to get to God on their own. You see, devotion to religion can blind you to the truth. You may even appear righteous in your dealings. In your defense of your faith and your belief system. Like Paul. You know Saul, he was a Pharisee, right? He persecuted the Christians. He got a letter from the high priest, okay? Giving him permission to persecute and torture torment, and even put to death those who are of the way, the Christians. And he, in his mind, he thought he was giving God a service. He's doing God a service. That that was a righteous thing. You see, devotion to religion is misplaced loyalty, and it's misplaced passion. It can blind you to the truth. Question, are you loyal to God and His truth, or are you loyal to your religious way of life. Are you loyal to Jesus or are you loyal to victory? Are you loyal to Jesus or to your victory group leader? Are you loyal to Jesus or are you more loyal to your pastor? As great as pastors, the church, our system here, the victory group leaders and the interns, as great as those are, they cannot replace God. Our loyalty is supposed to be focus on God. And you see, devotion to religion can lead to rejection of the truth. You see, devotion to religion is not necessarily devotion to truth. Devotion to religion can blind you to the truth, and ultimately, it can lead you to rejection of the truth. That's what happened there. When you reject truth, you open yourself up to deception. And you know the problem with deception is When you're deceived, you don't know you're deceived. Can you go and say, oh, you know what? Can you walk around this earth and say, you know, I'm deceived. If you know you're deceived, you're going to get out of it, right? But deception is so deceitful, you don't know you're deceived. (laughs) That's why it's called deception. You think you're in the right. Does this make sense? And because you reject truth, devotion to religion can lead you to a life devoid of love. Love is the motivation for life. And you see, devotion to religion runs against what biblical and true religion is, as what the Bible says. And here's what the Bible says about true religion. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction. What do these actions speak of? This speaks of love. Do the inconvenient thing. Love inconveniences you. Love gives up oneself to others. Religion, it's all about what I can get. And uh, as, I, as I wind down here, this rejection of truth, not only will it lead you to deception and to a life devoid of love, it, can, and it will ultimately lead you to a life, a life of religious fanaticism and religious extremism. That's why you see religious people judging people. You've seen some Christians in the past who condemn people, condemn leaders, all because they did not conform to what the Christians believed. And that's why society has reacted to to Christians today. You guys, you are so hypocritical. You judge us. That's what the world says and sadly most a lot of christians have done done, done that if you reject truth then you're going to be a religious fanatic to the point that you're going to be an extremist and a radical to the point that in the name of religion in the name of a false god you will kill people you will you know annihilate cultures you will go and ransack a town and rape everybody and think that you're doing god's will Now, we may not get to that point of extremism, but hey, you can't touch me. See, you're you're a sinner. I'm not supposed to touch you. I'm not supposed to have fellowship with you. I'm holier than you. If you touch me, you defile me. And we have a holier-than-thou attitude. That's a judgmental attitude that that so stinks that God hates it. The Bible says, Jesus himself said, judge not. For the judgment you use will be used against you. Look what's happening in the Middle East now. As I conclude, you see, we talked about religion. Our devotion should not be to religion. Our devotion should be to Christ. The issue is not what we do for God. The issue is are our hearts submitted to Christ. It's all about our hearts. Here's what Jesus said. Jesus said this, quoting Isaiah. These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. How many of you have seen people like this? Or maybe some of you are like this. Oh, yeah, praise the Lord. Glory to God. And then you do all these sinful things, and then you attend service here. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Glory to God. Amen, brother. You can say the Christian things, but God sees the heart. And many people are converted to the church, not to Christ. They love the church, but they've not given themselves to Jesus. Are they saved? No. Only Jesus can save you. It's all about our hearts. Their worship is a farce, but they teach man-made ideas as if they were the commands of God. And today we have branches of Christianity that say tradition is equal in authority as Scripture. That's dangerous. My main point here, as we wind down, is this. Hearts devoted to religion find only an empty life. But hearts devoted to Christ find eternal life. Where's your heart? What is your heart devoted to? Is it devoted to religion, your way of life? Or is it devoted to a person, to the Lord Jesus Christ? One last scripture as we end. You see... Let me say this. Let's not stop at external conformity to a set of do's and don'ts and thinking that by doing that, we're okay. We can do the right things and still be sick. Did you know that? You can still be so sick and still do the right things. The issue is not what you're doing. The issue is your health, your spiritual health, and your heart is tied to that. And here, let's not be just religious. Let's really... Follow Jesus. He said in John 5, 39, let's all stand right now as we end. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they, the scriptures, that bear witness about me. Yet, here's what Jesus said, you refuse to come to me, that you may have life. You come to the scriptures, you read the Bible, you study it, thinking that by, just by reading it, you'll be saved, you'll have eternal life because you've read your bible more than you know 2 hours more than the other guy then you have more capital with god in heaven yet you refuse to come to jesus these scriptures are pointing you to him these scriptures tell us that we are desperately sick and we cannot heal ourselves we cannot save ourselves these scriptures tell us that we are There's no salvation for us apart from what the Son of God did. And it's only His atoning sacrifice at the cross that will save us. You see, religion does not save you. When we face God in heaven, on that day when we all face Him, He's not going to ask, Are you Baptist? Are you Methodist? Are you Presbyterian? Are you Catholic? Are you from Victory? He's not going to ask that. He's going to look at your heart. And he's going to check if Jesus is there. He's going to see if Jesus is there. Friend, do you have Jesus in your heart now? Is Jesus the Lord of your life? Has Jesus saved you from your sin? Let's stop playing religion. And let's follow after the real thing. Because when we become religious... We are like the Pharisees in the Sanhedrin. We put Jesus on trial. And here's what he said when he was asked, again, going back to what he said. Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One? He said, I am. And I tell you, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of God the Father. And he will come down to the clouds of heaven. Speaks of his deity. Speaks of his lordship over all things. And guess what? Jesus is referring to a time in the future where he's going to judge all things. Look, he was being judged by the religious leaders at the time. But that's going to be temporary. He will be the judge of all. Wouldn't it be a scary thought to have the judge of all be someone you judged? and reject it. all our heads right now. Father, Lord, we realize that religion does not save and religion is man's attempt to reach you. But Lord, you don't want religion. There's nothing that we can do to save us or to merit your grace. Lord, it's only by your grace that it's a free gift that you give us. We don't deserve this, but you died on that cross, Lord Jesus, and you took our place. So that you can offer this gift of eternal life to us if we put our faith in you. And Lord, today I pray that we would not, we would stop being foolish and say, I can do this, Lord. You don't have to help me. I can, I can be good. All I need to do is to be good. All I need to do is to do good things. I'm not perfect, but I do good things. Lord, I pray that you would open their eyes and that they would be set free from the deception that there is nothing Good that we can do that it will be enough to merit salvation. Apart from Christ, we are doomed, all of us. And Jesus knew that, but but He gave us life for us so that we can have a chance to be restored to our purpose and to be saved. And for those of us who have put our trust in Christ and repented of our sin and, and and, and put our trust in Christ, He has saved us. But for those of you here, friends, no. who have not yet done so, maybe you're just accompanying your your family here. Maybe your spouse is Christian and you're not, and you think, oh, because she's Christian and then I'm okay. She prays for me. You see, Jesus. we will all give an account, each of us, for how we've treated Jesus. What are we going to do with the fact that Jesus Christ died and gave his life for us on that cross? Lord, I pray that you would remove the veils, remove every blinders, remove every deception from our minds, from our soul, from our spirits, and let the light and the glory of Christ shine brightly and let it be a revelation to people today, Lord, that they would say, Jesus, I need you, that they would see their need of you, and that, they would, we, that we would all see you for who you really are, the Son of God, the Messiah, who gave His life to save us. Lord, you didn't have to, but because of your great love, you did. And so Lord, today we respond, not like the religious leaders who mistreated you, Lord. We respond in humility, saying, Jesus, you're the Lord of all. And we surrender our lives to you. We repent of our sins. Can we all pray that right now? whether you're a Christian or not, let's just pray this. And if you want to pray this for the first time, join us. Lord Jesus, I repent of all my sins and I turn my life over to you. I surrender my life to you. Save me, Lord. Only you can save me. Only you are the Savior. And I ask that you would save me as I put my faith in you, as I... Repent of my sin. You forgive me and you cleanse me of my sin. I ask that you would forgive me. I ask that you would cleanse me, Lord. I ask that you would come, Lord, and be the king of my life. I yield to you. I surrender to you. Lord, I don't want to be conformed to any religious mindset that says we can do this without without the Lord, without Jesus. We can't do this without you. That's why we need a Savior. So Jesus, have your way in us as I, give up, as I give my life to you. Take your place in my heart as Lord, King, and Master. And I commit to live my life for you, for your glory and honor, for all the days of my life. Thank you, Jesus, for loving me and for dying on that cross to save me. I give myself to you. I am yours, Lord. If you pray that prayer sincerely for the first time, let me invite you. Don't just leave this place, you know, without talking to anybody. Talk to the person who invited you here. Or talk to your victory group leader if you've been attending a victory group but you're not sure if Jesus saved you already. Today you can be sure. Talk to them. Jesus wants to give you eternal life. Outside of Him, that you would only find an empty life. But in Him, we can have abundance.